Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. And now, it's time for Serralo Sports Talk with Joe Serralo. Let's get this started. Serralo Sports Talk with me, Joe Serralo, live on your national airwaves for the next hour. And we've got a ton to get to. Look, we're going to get to the Indianapolis Colts and the decision made to let their head coach, Frank Reich, go and who they brought in to replace him. We're going to react now. It seems like this is the perfect time slot, Wednesday evenings, to do it to the newest, the latest college football playoff rankings. We'll see how the committee did this week. I think they had a much better week this week. Than they did a week ago with their initial rankings of the season. It's also hot stove season. We're going to talk MLB free agency. One big name free agent already off the table. We'll take a look at the rest of them and where they might land. But let's dive in to the story of the week. The Indianapolis Colts and their new head coach, Jeff Saturday. I mean, this is an absurd, an absolutely absurd decision, an absurd move by Jim Irsay and by the Indianapolis Colts. Jeff Saturday is a great player, was a great player, I should say, is a great analyst, was absolutely killing it on ESPN. The guy has no head coaching experience. Now, he worked in a reduced role with the team. He was an advisor to the team, you know, still doing his analysis work on ESPN. To bring him in now, halfway through, an absolutely defunct disaster of a season, and put him in that locker room in front of 53 men who have not seen his face on a daily, day-to-day basis throughout the course of the season, it is absolutely absurd. This move makes zero sense. Look, you know, we've seen it from time to time in, in sports. We've seen, you know, players who retired recently go become head coaches, not just, you know, in football. In fact, not often in football, but for example, look to basketball, right? Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, shortly after retiring, right to head coaching. More often than not, it's a disaster. But at least, you know, those hires, guys like I'll even throw Derek Fisher in there for a reason because all three of those guys are point guards. And you can, to an extent, say, well, hey, you know, when you're a point guard in the NBA, for example, You're the head coach on the court, right? When you're the point guard, you're the floor general, you're running the show. Now, you're taking a guy who was an offensive lineman in this league, albeit a center, which is, you know, one of the positions where you're calling out what you're seeing on the defense. You know all the schematic designs and everything. But you're taking a guy from the offensive line who's been in TV for a couple of years now, who was an advisor, a consultant to the team, and you're telling him it's your show now take over. This is nuts. I don't care how smart Jeff Saturday is. I don't care how great of a football mind Jeff Saturday is. He's got to go out there and be a leader now in a locker room he has not been in on a consistent daily basis all year long. He's taken over 53 men. Some guys, I mean, some of the vets, older guys, you know, Matt Ryan, guys he played against at one point towards the the later years of his career. He's going to go in there now and he's going to be on the sideline guy who's gotten zero play calling experience. The only coaching experience he has whatsoever is his one year as a high school coach in which his team went, what, three and seven? I mean, the guy couldn't even get wins as a high school coach. He's going to go in there now and take a team 
that has started the year in abysmal 3-5-1. and one. A team that, as far as I'm concerned, there may be only two games out of it in the standings, but their season's over. He's going to change the morale in the locker room. He's going to rally these guys around him. He's going to start producing results. I don't think so. And the move isn't just about Jeff Saturday. It, it trickles down. I mean, like I said, he's got no play calling experience, right? And the Colts fired a head coach in Frank Reich, who was their play caller. Frank Reich, one of the, I think, best play callers of the past 10 or so years, at least seven, eight years in the National Football League, they've got no one to replace him. They didn't have an offensive coordinator who was calling plays. No, instead, it's going to be Parks Frazier, the 30-year-old assistant quarterback coach. Try try that. Try that for the Indianapolis Colts. Their assistant quarterbacks coach slash pass game specialist is now going to be the one calling the plays in Indianapolis. Do, do you Have you ever heard of Parks Frazier? Do any of you out there listening know who Parks Frazier is, what his background is? He is a 30-year-old, analytics-driven computer science major. <laughs> I, I mean, how about that? You know, look, there's nothing I like to do when I talk baseball. And look, baseball is definitely the sport that I've got the most experience, you know, from my playing days with, uh, the sport that I'm definitely most in touch with my favorite sport, but football's not far behind. So when, when I when I talk baseball, there's nothing I like to do more than bash the, uh, what I call them, the analytics nerds, right? The guys with the Ivy League degrees who couldn't throw a baseball, couldn't go to the carnival and play that game where you got to knock the cups down by throwing a ball at it, wouldn't know what the hell to do if you put a ball in their hands, right? Yet they're going to sit in the front office and they're going to break down, you know, all the different analytics and all the different stats. And they're going to try to tell me who should be hitting in what situation, pinch hitting versus which reliever. I can't stand those guys. Parks Frazier is essentially to football what those guys are to baseball. Now, yes, the guy played college football, right? I want to give him his propers. Was a quarterback at Murray State FCS school. Had no no shot, no pipe dream of playing professionally at any level. And now he comes in and he's going to be calling the plays. He's their assistant quarterbacks coach. How how good has that turned out for Indianapolis this year? How, how's their quarterback situation been? Matt Ryan had, what, a 9-to-9 touchdown interception ratio? Gets benched for Sam Ellinger? The Indianapolis Colts might very well have the worst quarterback situation in the National Football League. And this is who's getting promoted when their head coach gets fired. This guy's getting promoted to be the play caller? It's a disaster. It's a disaster. But disaster's been inevitable for the Indianapolis Colts. Disaster's been on its way for a couple of years now, right? Disaster was inevitable the second Philip Rivers retired. Now, Philip Rivers was never the answer, right? Philip Rivers was never going to take this Colts team to the promised land, but this team has been nothing but filled with stopgaps at quarterback since Andrew Luck retired. The second Andrew Luck retired, this franchise went into absolute shambles, and they had pieces. They had one of the league's best offensive lines. This year, not so much. They had a really good defense. This year, it's been, you know, they've come and gone, their defense. It's been inconsistent. There's been flashes. You know, you look at the Kansas City Chiefs game, right? Don't forget, these 3-5-1 and one Colts beat the Kansas City Chiefs. There's been flashes. There hasn't been consistency. Last year, Jonathan Taylor was the best running back in the National Football League. This year, he's arguably the worst number one overall pick in fantasy football history. The Colts have had disaster on the way for quite some time. You look at the quarterbacks that they've run out there the last three years. Phillip Rivers got him 10 wins, got him to the playoffs. Since then, Carson Wentz. Carson freaking 
Wentz. Absolute disaster. The Colts should have been a playoff team last year. They lost a couple tightly contested games to the Tennessee Titans in their division. Carson Wentz made some ridiculous mistakes, some absolutely costly, unexcusable turnovers. Then they get hot at the right time, they're cruising, and they drop a couple games late in the year. Game to the Raiders, of course, the famous Week 18, Game 17 against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Wentz is gone. He's out the door. Who do they bring in? Matt Ryan. And you know what? I'll admit it. When the Colts brought in Matt Ryan, I was one of the people saying, hey, this is going to work. They're not going to be a Super Bowl contender, but they have a good enough offensive line that Matt Ryan's lack of mobility won't kill them. He's a better decision maker than Carson Wentz. He's not going to throw games away the way Carson Wentz did. The Colts are going to overtake the Titans and win the AFC South. And boy, do I look like an idiot? Does everyone else, because the Colts were the consensus pick, boy, do we all look like idiots for this one. Because the Colts, this was just the year it all came to fruition. Disaster has been on the way. They haven't committed to the quarterback position. They've had stopgaps in place, and they've drafted late guys like Sam Ellinger. They haven't put weapons out there on the outside for these quarterbacks to throw to. They've figured, hey, we'll be able to get by. And you know what? Jonathan Taylor who had never been injured, never missed a practice in his varsity high school career, in his college career, all of a sudden, the workload, the overuse, gets to him. Jonathan Taylor has been a shell of himself this year when he's healthy, and for a large part of the year hasn't been healthy, and the Indianapolis Colts, oh, by the way, have had no backup plan. So I don't know what's going to change, what good is going to come out of bringing Jeff Saturday in, having Parks Frazier Call the plays. I mean, the Colts are an absolute disaster. I think they would have been better off waiting until the conclusion of the season and just starting anew in the offseason. Because right now, when I look at this from my perspective, a disaster was inevitable. And I don't think the 53 guys in that locker room are going to all of a sudden be inspired by the coaching decisions that Jim Irsay made in Indianapolis. Stick with me, Joe Serralo, right here on Serralo Sports Talk. We'll be back with more on the Colts and their opponent right after this. Back here on Serralo Sports Talk with me, Joe Serralo. We're diving into it all. The Indianapolis Colts, the landscape of the NFL, some coaching situations. Look, you heard what I had to say regarding the Indianapolis Colts and their decision to let Frank Wright go to bring in Jeff Saturday. I think that they would have truly been better off letting the season go, riding Frank Reich, seeing if, I mean, look, if, if anyone can be a quarterback whisperer in Indy, it's Frank Reich. And they already made the decision to bench Matt Ryan to let the kid Sam Ellinger ride it out. At this point, I know you're only two games out of the division. Nothing's changing there. You're not overtaking the Tennessee Titans. The Titans look damn good, and they don't even have a quarterback playing. They just took the Kansas City Chiefs to overtime with Malik Willis throwing for 80 yards, right? The AFC South is wrapped up. It's done. Halfway through the season, it's the Titans division once again. And that speaks, you know, we're talking about coaching speaks volumes to Mike Rabel and the fact that he's a top three, top four coach in the National Football League right now. But Frank Reich being fired here was was pretty ridiculous. When you look at replacing him with Jeff Saturday, a, a guy who was a great Colts player, a, a legend for the Indianapolis Colts franchise, a guy who I don't think is going to be able to do anything as a head coach for this organization. And you look at Reich, and I do think that he was wrongly fired. I think the front office has done an awful job with you know putting in stopgap quarterbacks year after year and not having any long-term plan or commitment 
to the most important position in all of sports. I think it's ridiculous, but I think Frank Reich's the winner here. Because like I've been saying, disaster was inevitable, and Frank Reich at least now gets out of Dodge, was a pretty good head coach for the majority of his time at Indianapolis, in Indianapolis, and I think Reich will go somewhere else, whether it's as a head coach or as an offensive coordinator, and show his skill set that he really is a brilliant offensive mind. I mean, for crying out loud, the guy won a Super Bowl with Nick Foles. Come on. I know that Nick Foles had his moments in Philly. We've seen Nick Foles everywhere else he's gone be a disaster. So maybe him having his moments in Philly, maybe, just maybe, we can attribute a little bit of that to Frank Reich and the truly brilliant quarterback mind that he is. He just didn't have the luxury of creativity this year with a guy like Matt Ryan, P.S. de Piedra, stone feet in the pocket, right? Uh, I mean, it was was a disaster when Indianapolis did constructing this roster, thinking that they were just going to ride Jonathan Taylor to the finish line like they tried to a year ago when he had a historic season coming out of the backfield and the team finished just nine and eight because, oh, they didn't have a quarterback. They had Carson Wentz back there. But you talk about coaches who deserve to be on the hot seat, who maybe deserve to get canned. And I got to look at the team that the Indianapolis Colts are playing this week, the Las Vegas Raiders. You know, I have always hated the idea of a one and done coach in the National Football League. Most notably, you look in recent years, I think Steve Wilkes was done so dirty by the Arizona Cardinals when he had a one-and-done year with a horrific roster. I mean, a roster with hardly any NFL talent on it. And then he gets canned after going, what, 3-13? and Cardinals get the number one overall pick. And their master plan of uniting Cliff Kingsbury with Kyler Murray comes to fruition. Oh, by the way, that's been a disaster because Cliff Kingsbury can't coach his way out of a paper bag in the National Football League. But I think the Las Vegas Raiders have a serious case to have a one-and-done head coach in Josh McDaniels. And this isn't necessarily a true one-and-done because McDaniels has been a head coach before in the National Football League. He's been a head coach before in the AFC West. He's failed as a head coach before in the National Football League. Josh McDaniels with the Las Vegas Raiders has been nothing short of an absolute dumpster fire. I I mean, he inherited an offense that had made the playoffs a year ago, defied all odds to make the playoffs. Season started off terribly, Gruden gets canned, and they rally under interim coach Rich Bisaccia, who, by the way, should have had the interim label removed. They rally, they make the playoffs. He inherits an offense with Derek Carr, Darren Waller, who, yes, he's battled injuries this year, and Hunter Renfro, and adds Devontae Adams to that already dynamic mix. You're seeing a career year in addition to that out of Josh Jacobs in the backfield, and yet the Raiders can't get a first down in the second half against the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. And I thought, I thought maybe, just maybe, after two weeks ago, after a terrible loss to the Saints in which Derek Carr threw for 100 yards, threw for 100 yards against the New Orleans Saints, Andy Dalton embarrassed the Raiders. I thought after that post-game meeting with owner Mark Davis that Josh McDaniels would have some urgency, that the team might change and finally trend upwards in the right direction because there's just too much damn talent on this roster for them not to, and nothing changed. They jump out to a 20-7 to lead in Jacksonville against a then 2-6 and Jaguars team. And what do they do? They go from up 20-7 to at halftime. They go on to lose 27-20. They couldn't get a first down in the second half. The Las Vegas Raiders could not move the ball against the Jacksonville Jaguars for 30 minutes. They needed to score... Seven points in the second half. Couldn't do it. 
Couldn't couldn't get on the scoreboard. Got blanked. Got shut out in Duval in that second half. Josh McDaniels is not cut out to be a head coach in the National Football League, folks. There is a reason that Bill Belichick never handed him the reins in New England. There is a reason that even after Tom Brady left, Bill Belichick was not ready to hang it up to retire. Bill Belichick is grooming the next head coach of the New England Patriots, and Josh McDaniels was never going to be that guy. He left the Indianapolis Colts at the altar thinking he was going to be that guy, but he was never going to be that guy because Josh McDaniels is an incapable head coach in the National Football League. You give him an offense that is built on great blocking, check down passes, running the ball, Yeah, I mean, he can move the chains like he did with New England last year when they really didn't have much of an offense to speak of. This year, he's expected to go be creative. He's got all the talent in the world, and he can't do squat. Couldn't do squat in Denver, can't do squat with the Las Vegas Raiders. And it's not just Josh McDaniels who's failing his attempted Patriots way takeover with another franchise. How about Dave Ziegler, the Raiders' first-year GM, right? Was the director of player personnel with New England before coming out to Vegas this offseason. He came in, flexing his muscles, thinking the Patriot way was taken over, has now cut a couple first-round draft picks by the Raiders. Immediately in the offseason, cuts Alex Leatherwood. Now, was Alex Leatherwood an absolutely horrendous first-round draft pick by the Raiders a couple years ago? Yes, that move made zero sense. Not going to dispute that. Pause. Was Alex Leatherwood one of the five best offensive linemen on this Raiders team? Yeah, probably their offensive line stinks. So coming in, coming in for Ziegler, cutting Leatherwood, trying to make some sort of statement was absolutely asinine. And now he cuts Jonathan Abram, who, you know, a lot of people, myself included, were high on out of college, just didn't, didn't have a role with the Raiders. But now my question is, right, if you're Ziegler, your whole career background is in player personnel development. Josh McDaniels is the head coach. Why was a role not defined for Jonathan Abram? The guy's not an NFL safety. He was a terrific college safety. He's an NFL linebacker. Why was the offseason plan not get bigger, know your role, and own your role, and be a linebacker? It's there's There's no direction in Las Vegas. There's no direction with this Raiders franchise. And Ziegler and McDaniels coming in, and trying to impose their Patriot way, their my way or the highway, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, guys. It's plain and simple. We've seen this in other markets. We've seen There's a reason that Bill Belichick assistants historically go elsewhere and flop. There's a reason why Bill Belichick assistants, Joe Judge, tried his Patriot way crap with the Giants, and he was awful. Did the team rally in the second half of his first season there? Absolutely. They almost made the playoffs, but guys, they almost made the playoffs at seven and nine, right? That's what would have gotten them to the playoffs, seven and nine. That's nothing to be proud of. That's nothing to speak of, right? The Patriot way crap didn't work in New York. Matt Patricia was a complete flop in Detroit, but hey, now Matt Patricia and Joe Judge are back in New England, assistants under Belichick, both working on the defensive side of the ball. Both working actually really on, on both sides of the ball uh, and because they don't have defined roles in that coaching staff because Belichick mic- micromanages everything because if he didn't do that, they would just fall to you-know-what. And, and you know what? It's working, right? The Patriots started the year really poorly, and now they're winning games. Now they're blowing teams out. You know, you take away the Chicago debacle on Monday night a couple weeks ago, and the Pats have been one of the hottest teams in football. So obviously, guys like McDaniels, 
guys like Joe Judge, guys like Matt Patricia. You put them in New England as assistants following the Patriot way, they're doing a damn good job. You put them with another franchise where they try to bring the Patriot way to town, and they're busts. They're disasters. They're dumpster fires. That's what this is in Las Vegas, folks. It is a dumpster fire. You've got a quarterback who in the offseason people were saying is going to have a breakout year, a quarterback who people were saying could win the MVP, a quarterback in Derek Carr who people were saying maybe this guy is going to be a Hall of Famer. Maybe he adds an MVP to his resume. Maybe he gets on a playoff run. Maybe you can make a case Derek Carr is a Hall of Famer one day. Derek Carr is having the worst year of his career with Josh McDaniels, a supposed brilliant offensive mind, as his head coach. Devontae Adams, who left Green Bay to be reunited with his old college quarterback in Derek Carr. Devontae Adams having the worst year of his career in Las Vegas. This team is an absolute disaster. This team is an absolute embarrassment. Josh McDaniels has now had his second crack at being a head coach in the National Football League, and he doesn't deserve it. Josh McDaniels deserves to be fired, more than Frank Reich deserved to be fired, because McDaniels, you look at the offensive side of the ball, had way more talent, has way more talent to work with than Frank Reich has had in the last three years in Indianapolis. Definitely the last two. It's... It's atrocious what's going on in Las Vegas. And this week will be interesting because the Vegas Raiders, I mean, you look at the spread, they're six and a half point favorites. I don't think they could beat St. Mary's School for the Blind by six and a half points right now. And you look at the Colts, who have no offensive identity, no offensive plan, a head coach who I don't believe knows what he's doing as head coach. And this game, I mean, this could be like a a six to three ball game, folks. This is going to be circle this one on your calendars. These were two teams I think we all thought would be playoff teams coming into the year. This is going to be the ugliest game of the week. When we come back, we're going to switch things up a little bit. We'll look at college football. We'll look at the MLB offseason. Stick with me, Joe Sorallo. You're dialed into Sorallo Sports Talk. All right, back here on Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo. Going to switch things up a little bit. Been an NFL-heavy show. A lot of coaching problems. A lot of franchises in the NFL just have been absolute disasters this season. I mean, you look at, obviously, the Colts and Raiders, two teams with lofty expectations that we've touched on in this episode. Didn't even touch on the teams that I hit on last week. Teams like the Tampa Bay Bucks, the, the Green Bay Packers, the Los Angeles Rams, who, I mean, the fact that they did not leave Tampa Bay last week, with a win, the Rams might be the the biggest disaster of them all right now. They couldn't get a first down in the final two minutes of that game to ice one in Tampa. The defense couldn't stop Tom Brady throwing to you and me out there. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even tell you the name of the guy who caught that big that big pass from Brady to move the ball downfield. And then I believe it was the same guy who had the game-winning touchdown for Tampa Bay against the Rams. Absolutely insane how these quote-unquote top dogs in the NFC, the top three teams, I think, on everyone's consensus board coming into the year have all been utter disasters. But we're going to switch it up. We're going to take things over to baseball and then eventually to college football because free agency in the MLB has has officially begun, and you've got the first signing of the offseason – And it's a re-signing. Edwin Diaz. Cue those trumpets, baby. Edwin Diaz is coming back to New York for at least three, if not six years. It's a five-year contract worth 102 mil. He's got an opt-out after three, and the Mets have a club option for a sixth year. So Diaz will be a Met for anywhere between the next three to six seasons. And 
this was an absolute no-brainer. Look, zero disrespect to Jacob deGrom, zero disrespect to Brandon Nimmo, who I would even rank in terms of importance to the club, ahead of Jacob deGrom for Steve Cohen in the Mets offseason list, their offseason to-do list. I think Edwin Diaz was the clear-cut guy atop that list. Now, you might say, well, how are you going to, to pick a relief pitcher, a closer, over a starter, or over a guy in Brandon Nimmo who plays at least 150 games a year? How can you do that? It's plain and simple. The New York Mets did not lose a game this season in which they had the lead after eight innings. The New York Mets did not, I'll say it again, did not lose a game this season in which they had a lead after eight. When the Mets went into the ninth inning with a lead, their winning percentage was perfect in the 2022 season. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is because of Edwin Diaz. Edwin Diaz is the best closer in baseball. Edwin Diaz has reverted to the Edwin Diaz that the New York Mets traded for in the offseason going into the 2019 season. Right? This is 2018 Seattle Mariners' Edwin Diaz, except this year, even though the save numbers might not have been there, Mets won a lot of blowouts this year, the save numbers might not have been the same as when he had 57 for Seattle in 2018, but I believe that this was the best version of Edwin Diaz we have seen yet. And Diaz has been, for the last three years, consistently great. 2020, I know it was a shortened season. He only had six saves. Don't look at that number. The team stunk. They didn't win many games. But Edwin Diaz was dominant in 2020. 2021, he was really good. 2022, he was damn near perfect. Sub one and a half ERA. I I mean, the guy was striking out people over 50% of the time. Almost a historic strikeout rate. Almost a historic K per nine rate. Edwin Diaz was the number one priority for Steve Cohen and the Mets this offseason, and they wasted no time agreeing to a deal before they could even actually put the pen to the paper. This was a terrific move, and I can't wait to see all the moves that are going to follow. I mean, Brandon Nimmo for the Mets, to me, has to be next. I I know there might be fans out there yelling, well, what about Jacob deGrom? deGrom is going to take his time with this decision. I cannot envision a world where Jacob deGrom signs uh, before winter meetings, at winter meetings. I think Jacob deGrom is going to take his sweet time. And I think with that, I think the starting pitching market is going to take a lot of time to develop. I think the other dominoes are going to fall rather quickly. The shortstop market is absolutely insane. I mean, you look at a shortstop market where Trey Turner is a free agent. Dansby Swanson is a free agent. Carlos Correa, who opted out after one year with Minnesota, is a free agent. Xander Bogart, who I feel like no one is talking about, is a free agent. These shortstops on the market are nuts. Uh, I mean, after that, you know, you look around the rest of the, the rest of the diamond. You've got Wilson Contreras, pretty clear-cut front runner at catcher. You've got, you know, your top two outfielders, obviously Aaron Judge, the number one overall free agent. And then after him, you know, Brendan Nimmo, probably the next best outfielder on the market. Got a couple bats. J.D. Martinez, not sure where to put him. Probably a DH. Same with Josh Bell, who was traded to San Diego at the deadline. It's, it's going to be interesting to see where the dominoes fall, but the shortstop market, you got teams like Atlanta, teams like Philadelphia, teams like the Dodgers. There are going to be a lot of teams that overspend that go try to get their guy atop their lineup, those table setters, the Swansons, the Turners. And you might even have teams that have a need in the outfield because there just flat out aren't a lot of good outfield options in free agency. Go out there and try to get a guy like Trey Turner, a team like back to him, the New York Mets. There have been rumors that the New York Mets might actually pursue Trey Turner, who has said that his favorite stadium to play at is Citi Field, 
who has said that his dream MLB teammate that he hasn't yet played with is Jacob deGrom. There are rumors that the New York Mets might try to go out there, sign Trey Turner. Now they've got Francisco Lindor locked up for the next nine years, but that they might try to convert Turner should they lose out on retaining Brandon Nimmo and make Turner their center fielder. Now, I wouldn't personally prioritize that move. I got, I got asked on Believe in Queens on my Mets podcast with Tyler Ward at Wardy NYM and with Anthony Recker, of course, the former New York Met who you see on MLB Network all the time. I got asked by Tyler who I'd rather have, Trey Turner or Brandon Nimmo in center field. And that's a tough question for a lifelong Mets fan to answer objectively. The objective answer for me taking my fandom out of the equation and my love for Brandon Brandon Nimmo and the fact that he's been in this organization for over a decade, the objective answer for me was Brandon Nimmo. Now, there's no, there's no question. I'm not going to sit here and dispute Trey Turner is the better athlete, the better ball player, but I believe Brandon Nimmo is a better center fielder. I, I think Trey Turner is at best an average defensive center fielder given that he's hardly played the position, maybe a couple times in his early years with the Nationals, but he's a shortstop. He's a middle infielder, right? I think Trey Turner's best position personally is second base. I don't think he wants to play second base. I think he wants to show off his freak athleticism, but I just don't think at the end of the day, I'm confident with him in center field, no matter how fast the guy is. Brandon Nimmo made leaps and bounds as a defensive center fielder this season, and I thought was an absolute snub being left off as one of the three finalists for National League Gold Glove. Brandon Nimmo played a Gold Glove center field this season. Point in case, he's one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball, and that matters, right? You can get away with a great bat in right. You can get away with a great bat in left. You know, look at the Philadelphia Phillies. They went to the World Series. They had one of the worst defensive corner outfields in baseball, if not the worst, with Schwarber in left and Castellanos in right. I mean, that was that was a disaster that they couldn't have Bryce Harper out there in right field because he is such a defensive upgrade from Castellanos. But center field, you need a defensive guy, right? Center field is a position where sometimes teams will sacrifice a bat to have a plus defender out there. Brandon Nimmo gives you that plus glove. But also, if you look at the way the Mets won games this year, right? You have to assess what their plan is offensively going into next season because this year, it was don't strike out and get on base and string together base hits. Now, if that's your plan, Brandon Nimmo fits that bill beautifully. The guy hardly strikes out. The guy runs pitchers deep in accounts. There, there was some absurd correlation between the Mets getting pitchers over 20 pitches in the first inning and their winning percentage. Brandon Nimmo takes some of the longest at-bats in baseball. In fact, the Mets had three guys on that list. Nimmo, Mark Canna, and Luis Guillorme. All of them averaged seeing about four and a half, five pitches per at-bat this season. Trey Turner doesn't see as many pitches as Nimmo. Now, he's a better hitter. He's a higher average guy. He'll hit 300 as opposed to 270. He'll swipe more bags if you want that old-school traditional leadoff guy atop your lineup. But if your focus is working pitch counts off the bat, first at-bat of the game, and getting on base, well, Brandon Nimmo fits that better than Trey Turner. So... You know, the Mets really have to evaluate who they think is a better fit on this team as opposed to necessarily who's the better baseball player because that's Trey Turner all day, every day. I think Brandon Nimmo, though, fits this team and this lineup beautifully. I mean, you look at the play he made, right? That August game with Jacob deGrom on the bump against the Dodgers late August and Justin Turner cracks one to deep center field and Nimmo climbs the fence and brings a home run back in the ballpark. Uh, that, That kind of stuff is is invaluable. And I think Brandon Nimmo is a really crucial, integral, essential part of the Mets. I think more so than the guy I just named, than Jacob deGrom. I think he needs to be a priority 
for the Mets to go out there and be the next guy on their list. Now, what's interesting about DeGrom is that he kind of sets the table for the rest of the market, right? Because you look at the top two teams that might pry DeGrom away from the Mets, and you're probably looking at the Atlanta Braves and the Texas Rangers. Now, there's other other starting pitchers out there. It's a top-heavy starting pitching market, but behind DeGrom, you've got Verlander, who's an opt-out guy. You've got Kershaw, who's on the market, probably only between the Dodgers and Rangers in terms of him. And then you've got Carlos Rodon. Now, if DeGrom stays with the Mets, you can pretty much guarantee Rodon is going to get a hefty payday from the Texas Rangers, right? Vice versa, if DeGrom signs with the Braves or if he signs with the Rangers, Rodon's probably a Met, right? You've got Chris Bassett, who the Dodgers are going to probably make a play for, uh, who I think if DeGrom leaves, the Mets will work hard to retain. It's really interesting to see the impact DeGrom has on this market. It might take a while for the starting pitching market to develop. I think position players will come off the board much more quickly. By the way, we've got about two, three minutes left in this segment, and I do want to get to the college football playoff rankings because we'll have a long winter to talk MLB free agency. I don't think as many guys will sign as quickly as Edwin Diaz just did, but let's look at the rankings because the committee, I think, this week did a tremendous job. Georgia, clear-cut number one. You knew the winner of number one Tennessee, number three Georgia was going to be number one, right? That, that was a no-brainer. Ohio State stays at two after struggling with Northwestern. Michigan up to three. They're in the top four where they belong. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the loser of Michigan-Ohio State will probably miss the playoff. The winner will go to the playoff, and that's that's how it should be, right? No no issue there. For now, though, Ohio State-Michigan 2-3, and TCU gets that four spot. Now, this was so huge. This needed to happen because last week, Clemson was in the four spot. TCU was on the outside looking in. They were sixth, and that was ridiculous because I don't care about Clemson's quote-unquote, wins against ranked opponents. And I say quote-unquote because a lot of those teams that were ranked when Clemson beat them aren't ranked anymore. You know, Wake Forest, not ranked anymore. North Carolina State, very mediocre, right? Clemson's strength of schedule was not crazy. And they got whooped by an unranked Notre Dame team. So I am just so relieved that Clemson's not going to go 13-0 because they are not one of the four. I don't think they're one of the best six teams in the country. And I think TCU might be. And I think TCU is going to show us whether they are or they aren't this week against the Texas Longhorns. Texas is favored against TCU. I can't believe it. I mean, Texas is a three-loss team, albeit probably the best three-loss team in the country. TCU's unbeaten. Their quarterback, Max Duggan, is an absolute juggernaut. Their offensive coordinator, Lincoln Riley's brother, has done a tremendous job with that team. I mean, we've seen them come back from a 28-10 deficit and go on a 28-0 run to beat Kansas State. This TCU offense is nearly unstoppable. Their defense can play a little better at times, but for the uh, for the most part this season has been great. And they're full touchdown underdogs. I'll tell you what, I was going to give you a bet in the last segment. I'll still give you a better two in the last segment, but I love TCU. I think they're going to win this game outright, but I love TCU plus the seven in Austin, Texas this week. The top four is where the Horned Frogs finally are. The top four is where the Horned Frogs belong. I believe the top four is where the Horned Frogs will stay. This TCU team has a legitimate chance to run the table this year and go into the playoff at 13-0. I said last week with their resume, if they had the brand that Texas or, or Oklahoma had, that they would have been in the initial playoff ranking last week. Well, this week, the committee finally did the right thing, and I think TCU is going to show them that they're going to stay in the top four for the rest of the year. When we come back, it'll be time for my final word on Sorallo Sports Talk. I've got a couple bets for you. In addition to TCU Plus 7, stick with me, Joe Sorallo. We'll be right back. 
All right, it's time for my final word here on this episode. Episode 87 of Serralo Sports Talk, getting closer and closer to 90 and, of course, closer and closer to that century mark right here with me, Joe Serralo. And as always, I've got some best bets for you. I've got to write the ship, guys. I was on a 4-0 hot streak last week, gave you the Packers, minus 3.5 at Detroit with a ton of conviction, lost that one. By the way, my only loss of the week. Make sure you head over to at the Joe Serralo on Twitter. I give out my Serralo pick six for the NFL every Sunday morning, six picks against the spread, and my extra point, which of course is my underdog money line winner of the week. Well, this week, my pick six and my extra point went four, one, and two. Had a couple crappy pushes, the Vikings minus three, the Rams plus three. Both should have never happened, but a push is a push. It is what it is. On the five games that were decided by a win or a loss, I went four out of five. So make sure you follow me at the Joe Serralo on Twitter for those picks every week. But I gave you TCU plus seven. I'm going to give you at least one more pick, maybe two more if we have the time, because I really want to right the ship, do right by you, and make y'all some money. So I've got another college game. We're taking LSU. Minus three at Arkansas. I was really high on the Razorbacks coming into the season. They got off to a hot start, and since then, they've come back down to earth, and they've looked ugly. They've lost three out of their last five. Their defense has not done anything against anyone. This Arkansas team can score, but they gave up 27 points to Auburn. They gave up 35 points to BYU, and those are in their two wins in their last five games. Bama blew them out. How about this? They lost to Mississippi State 40-17. to Tells me all I need to know about them going up against an LSU team that in back-to-back games has destroyed Ole Miss, coming back from down 17-3 to win 45-20, and beating Alabama 32-31 in OT. I know both of those games were in Baton Rouge, but they went to Florida. They put up 45 on the Gators in a win in the Swamp. I think they're going to go to Arkansas, and they are going to dominate the Razorbacks. It's going to be a high-scoring game, but something along the lines of 42-28. LSU's offense is just clicking too much right now. I love them minus three in this spot. And then an NFL play for you. The Tennessee Titans, minus three. I made a ton on the Titans, plus 14 on Sunday Night Football. I didn't care who was quarterback against Patty Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Titans have Derrick Henry. You may know their game plan, but you can't stop their game plan. They're 6-2 against the spread, 5-3 straight up this year. They failed to cover in their first two, and since then they've covered six straight. Well, they're only two-and-a-half point favorites at home against Russ Wilson and the disaster That is the Denver Broncos. Give me Tennessee minus two and a half. My NFL lock of the week. And just like that, this episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I'll see you next week for episode 88. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.